Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Last year, back in episode 108, we welcomed Dr Amy Jeffs onto the podcast to discuss her book Storyland, A New Mythology of Britain. I chatted with Amy about the book, whose premise was to retell and analyse some of the famous and some of the more obscure myths of the British Isles. Storyland went on to receive many accolades, including a Times Book of the Year Award for historical fiction and other Book of the Year Awards from the Daily Express and BBC History magazine, to name but a few. I'd like to think the Folklore Podcast played its part in pushing Storyland to those well-deserved awards. But it didn't. Amy's writing did that. As such, of course, we had to invite Amy back after publishing her second title, Wild, Tales from Early Medieval Britain, a few months ago. This time, Amy turns her attention to the British countryside, using a variety of medieval texts to retell stories and provide expert analysis on themes such as earth, fen, forest and beast. This time around, Amy met with our literary correspondent, Hilary Wilson. You know, hi, this is Hilary Wilson with the Folklore Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Amy Jeffs about the new book, Wild. So welcome again to the podcast, Amy. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Hilary. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it seems like just yesterday you were here discussing Storyland, which has uh, made quite the impact here. Thank you. Yes, it's good to be back. Uh, so your book, Wild, is uh, similar to Storyland, but this time you are taking writings from the Book of Exeter. Yes, the Exeter book, as it's known. Um, so it, it's the Storyland really focuses on on source material from the, I suppose you could say the Middle Ages proper or the High Middle Ages to the Late Middle Ages, um, from kind of mostly from the mid twelfth century onwards, um, and it it aims to tell a story of Britain's mythic origins by retelling medieval source texts uh, chronologically, starting. Um, before Noah's flood with the giants quarrying the stones that become Stonehenge and running all the way through to uh, the Norman conquest uh, via the foundation of Britain, the foundation of the Scottish race and uh, the foundation of the English people. Um, So Wilde is slightly different in that um, while it also has stories followed by commentaries, non-fiction commentaries in each chapter, and is also illustrated with relief prints, um, the stories aren't retellings. They are short stories inspired by these much earlier sources. So sources from sort of the 6th through to the uh, 11th centuries. And um, and what it seeks to do across seven themed chapters entitled Earth, Ocean, Forest, Beast, Fen, Catastrophe, Paradise, is explore an old idea of the wilderness and our psychological relationship to it. Uh, I thought that this was much more primal, you know, in its approach. Mm-hmm. It felt a bit more similar to the fantastic prehistoric stories that you were discussing within Storyland, mm-hmm. while also being more relatable in a way, um, because each of the stories was focused upon such a visceral experience. Um, yes. The first of the themed chapters, uh, Earth, was inspired by the wife's lament 
uh, mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Yes. So you mentioned the Exeter book already, and I really should have have dwelled on that slightly more <laughs> because um, so that's a, a manuscript in Exeter Cathedral, um, which is it's from around 970. It was made, um, and then by 1072, it arrived Exeter Cathedral upon the death of uh, the Bishop of Exeter, Leofric. And it must have been in his collection because then it ends up in the cathedral and has been there ever since. So Exeter Cathedral, you know, it's one of these amazing places that there has been some building of that institution on that site for hundreds of years. And this book has been there, too. And it's a it's one of the four surviving big compendia of Old English verse. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't have it, we would lose this amazing record of how emotionally subtle our old English speaking forebears were and also kind of their quite uh, obscene sense of humor at times <laughs> um and it's just it's an amazing book because it has uh you know it's got a life of Saint Guthlac about this kind of heroic saint that goes out into the fens and makes his home in a prehistoric barrow but first he has to exercise a whole load of incumbent demons uh there's also three animal poems called the partridge the panther and the whale, uh, which isn't a trio you find elsewhere, I imagine. Um, they they describe um, the purported behavior behaviors of those animals, and then give them a kind of Christian allegorical reading. But they're they're pretty funny and kind of mad. Um, there's also ninety five or some ninety five old English riddles, which um, speak from the perspective of the object um, of the solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of them are um, are you know very imaginative sort of descriptions of of writing being like plowing a furrow that kind of thing. There's one that uh, or at least at least one that is really quite salacious. Like uh, it says, um, you know, I stand up straight in a bed. I'm hairy at my base, and something along the lines of I make the ladies' eyes water. Um, and this is a is thought to actually mean an onion and nothing more obscene if listeners' minds were going there. I've they should be ashamed of themselves. I've similar about a strawberry. Yeah, really? That was also quite salacious, and it definitely yeah. recalls that to my mind. <laughs> yeah, I think that sort of thing. Provocative fruit and vegetables. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, this is this is something a sort of glimpse into the Exeter book. Among the Old English riddles scattered among them are a selection of poems known as the Old English elegies. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very much like riddles; they're very enigmatic, uh, but they're not they're not quite structured in the same way. Um, and they they seem to explore quite profound psychological situations. Um, through the lens of very wild landscapes, wild northwestern European landscapes like frozen ocean or ruined cities or um, uh, this kind of this story, the wife's lament, which which you already mentioned, this woman who says she's trapped in an earthen dugout under an oak tree and she's been told to wait there by her lord and she's encircled by briars and ringed about by mountains and the summer sun edges slowly overhead um endlessly um it was these poems that i encountered as an 18 year old the elegies when i was went off to study um anglo-saxon norse and celtic at cambridge and um and they just completely disarmed me i think i was expecting uh old english literature to be very much like um sort of hollywood beowulf um and actually it was so much more subtle and these these poems that had such um such wonderfully evocative um 
narrators, people like a, a man spinning out in the frozen ocean, his feet fettered by frost, dreaming of former joys in the hall, or the woman trapped under the oak tree, or another woman who who is longing for somebody she calls wolf, but in a relationship with somebody who wraps his arms around his arms around her, and she says, "Was me winterthon? Was me huathra eichlath? It was joyful to me, but it was also hateful." Uh, and then this poem kind of transmutes and, and this one wolf who she's been longing for is suddenly bearing away her whelp to the woods. And she says, you hear us, can you hear me, treasure guardian? And you don't know whether wolf, this wolf character is um, has become a kind of enemy, whether he's turned on her. Um, and she, this, the song ends by saying it just goes to show you can easily tear apart that which was never sewn up our riddle together. Yeah. And. Yeah, I mean, these just incredible mind bending and and poems that are quite they have a kind of narrative incompleteness. You feel like they might be a lens onto a bigger story that's been lost or perhaps they're riddles in of themselves or perhaps they're just mysterious. And that's what makes them so, so amazing and that, that we'll never know. And maybe they never had that wider context. Um, so really, they, these are the springboard for for Wild. Um, and while I, I do bring in um latin literature from ireland as well as some uh an irish text and a welsh poem called the clav abikiaug uh it's really the old English that were the initial pole star and um to kind of explore this old idea of the wilderness yeah the story about wolf in particular has just stuck in my mind since i read it um you mentioned at one point um the phrase the horror vacui mm-hmm. uh which yeah. Um, if I recall correctly, you were explaining as, you know, just the fear of these empty spaces, um, yes. essentially. And I, I felt like the story of Wolf, in a way, was that because you just can't know whether this was part of a larger context. You know, if mm-hmm. these characters were ones that were just thrown around so often, you know, that people would know what the story was. But without knowing, it becomes sure. this almost liminal space just like the fen that they're inhabiting yes yes that's very beautifully put uh, it's just lodged in my head and i can't get it out i want to know Mm -hmm. more but the not knowing is part of what makes it so beautiful yes exactly and i think that's so much of um of what we were given to read as undergraduates studying this poem was was sort of getting to the seeing how different interpretations of the mystery and um and and yet there's always this this acknowledgement that you know we don't really want to find out and we won't luckily you know i don't think there's any chance we will kind of solve wolf and Nerdwatcher. um the this term horror vacui is is applied in relation to uh to art which which has kind of ornament completely covering the surface so um i'm sure my uh, listeners are familiar with the treasures of the Sh- sutton who ship burial uh, and things like the beautiful gold belt buckle, which has a pattern of, of numerous serpents writhing on its surface in the, in the gold, and they're all interlacing and tangling, and it's a real a riddle in in gold. You know, it's it it challenges you to trace those individual beasts um, in and out of of the other uh, zoomorphic forms, um, and it it was found in the belly of a ship that had been buried at the turn of the 7th century in the east east uh, in the east of England in the fens um where it would have just been an, an utterly waterlogged landscape with um 
probably not exactly where they buried it or they probably wouldn't have buried it there but in general um Mm -hmm. of reed beds and flocks of birds and eels massively um and these you know this this isn't purely inspired by that landscape but i feel as though it's amazingly consonant with it um that that this was a riddling landscape that they inhabited and that the art they produced is is kind of riddling too and the term horror vacui literally means yeah fear of the empty and so that these these artworks are seen to be kind of expressing that and also that maybe in this not work there was a kind of apotropaic function a function of um of warding off or confusing evil spirits it's why we find so much of this kind of ornaments in cultures across the world um, you know, very tangly, knotting, not work on the uh, thresholds of buildings or around doorways or on the corners of eaves and that kind of thing. Yeah, so these weak weak points where the devil might get in. Yeah, and I was expecting, you know, a little bit reading works from so far, you know, in the past, that there would be a bit of a sense of fear, you know, a bit of a sense of fear of, you know, like the ocean um you know which you had said in the book um the ocean was compared to a restlessness you know that Mm -hmm. you know that was the translation i forget in which language exactly yes i think it's in latin isn't it it's isidore of seville he he gives these fictive etymologies for different natural phenomena and he says that the the ocean is so called and he, he creates this link between between the latin word for tides and the word meaning restlessness. And he says, yeah, because it's, it's it's beautiful, isn't it? Um, it is. Yes. And I think, yeah, so you were going to say about fear. Yeah, I was expecting it to be something that was full of fear. But it caught me completely off guard um, reading the chapter that, well, the section uh, that was titled Ruin. You know, how there was this idea of brotherhood, you know, in spite or catastrophe. of... Or catastrophe. Catastrophe, yes. sorry. Yes, catastrophe, no, pretty much um, the same thing. You know, there was this brotherhood in spite of the ruination that was to come. You know, that mm-hmm. we are living in the last age. There's nothing we can do to stop this, but let's still create something beautiful. You know, let's still yes. celebrate being together. I thought that was just such a beautiful idea, especially with the book coming out, you know, in the midst of a bit of a catastrophe that we've all lived through. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I felt very personally inspired by by the sources that I was um, reading. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd want to talk more at the end about the kind of personal dimension, I suppose, but just to kind of, of elaborate for listeners on the on this chapter um, in seven nine three the uh, monastery at Lindisfarne was sacked by the Vikings. Lindisfarne is on the east coast of England, northeast coast, cold, windy, desolate pe- place, um, really good fish and chips, if anyone is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and Lindisfarne itself is, is on a kind of rocky outcrop, an island that can only be reached at low tide. And you could at that point, you can walk across the sand, uh, the mudflats to the island. Uh, but then it's cut off again, you know, a couple of hours later. And um, in 793, Vikings did the unthinkable. You know, this was a time when you know Charlemagne's court was in full swing. There was learning across Europe. There were amazing um, networks of of um, of scholarship and trade. Um, you know, it was a this was a time when they wouldn't have felt 
as though they were barbarians living in the early Middle Ages, like maybe we think of it. And um, and suddenly this this fleet of uh, Viking ships lands on Lindisfarne and they kill the monks and steal the relics and desecrate the altars. And it's absolutely cataclysmic, shocking um, event. And Alcuin, a, a English scholar who is in the court of Charlemagne, writes back to the Bishop of Lindisfarne kind of lamenting this horrendous event. What I found particularly interesting, so in the chapter, I don't focus on the attack itself, but on the um, the kind of build up to, because in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, it it um, which is a, a, a whole load of, of annal chronicles that survive from the um, Anglo-Saxon period that um, tell us in very terse terms different events that happen in different years. And in this one, it, for 793, it says, in this year there were um, whirlwinds over the ocean and flashes of light in the sky and there were dragons seen and there was a famine and the blossom froze on the trees. And uh, and then uh, the the Vikings raided the monastery at Lindisfarne and many were killed. And, um, and it's got this implication that that there was this sense of impending disaster. Um, and so that got me thinking about, about the experience of living on Lindisfarne, about what was being made there. You know, a hundred years earlier, they produced the Lindisfarne Gospels, which have always played on my, I mean, they're an incredibly beautiful um, book, fully digitized now. So you can just flick through the facsimile online. Um, but they, uh, you know, every page, every opening page of each gospel has uh, a beautiful decoration, carpet page a full page of geometric ornament followed by um initials the first the opening initials of the gospel um completely teeming with interlaced ornaments and um both ribbon interlaced and what they call zoomorphic interlaced so in this case birds all kind of perfectly um tessellated within the within the initials which then sort of flow out into this beautiful celtic curvilinear ornament of trumpet spirals and triskeles and they these pages combine the the metal working motifs of the Celtic and Germanic worlds in a medium that is uh, is Middle Eastern and classical um, in its um, kind of Mediterranean, let's say, and and so there's this amazing sort of coming together of cultural influences, and they are incredibly fine, you know, just the kind of fine pen work and and brushwork that that cannot be surpassed, you know, in any age. This is this is as, as beautiful as it gets. It's up there with these kind of Persian illuminations or um, you know, anything you could hope to rest your eyes on. And um and for, since first encountering them as an undergraduate, I, I was always interested in the birds. And I had one of those little ideas like, oh, you know, they lived out on the on this outcrop in the ocean. There must have been flocks of birds wheeling around them the whole time while they were painting these beautiful tessellated illuminations. And um, and then in the sort of the same course, still while I was an undergraduate, we we encountered a text called the Voyage of Saint Brendan, which is ninth century, and um, and it's about a group of monks who set sail, led by their their abbot Saint Brendan, they set sail from the coast of Ireland off into the Atlantic. No idea there's some big land mass that may or may not be of any interest in the future, <laughs> um, uh, off to the west, but they uh, they wander the the Atlantic for seven years visiting the same set of islands each year and um and they've got their their boat has no rudder so you know they're they're at the mercy of of the wind and of god's direction and um 
on the, I think one of the islands that particularly stuck out for me because all of the islands are pretty weird and wonderful. There's one with really, really big sheep. There's one with a crystal monastery. There's <laughs> one with grapes that are so huge you can live off them for three days. Uh, just one grape will feed a man for three days. Um, and ultimately, they do this seven-year journey and they they are, are looking for an earthly paradise and, and this is kind of where it all leads to. But at Easter... They come across an island every Easter that has a huge tree on it, a tree so big that its branches overhang either side of the island and it's completely covered in birds and the birds are all singing together and they're not just singing like tweet, 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 but they're singing words, actual words. And um, and the brothers can hear that they're, these are the psalms that they're singing, which is something that the brothers with themselves have spent a lot of time doing as monks, mm-hmm. um, singing the psalms. And uh, the... There's one of the birds lands on the prow of the boat and says, you know, we aren't we aren't birds. We are fallen angels that got trapped on in, in the firmament in Earth on the way down to hell. And we've been wandering ever since. And most of the time we're just doomed to wander. But on high days and holidays, God lets us take the form of birds and meet together and sing. Um, and one of the psalms they're singing is how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Um, so, you know, basically what what. Brendan and his monks are doing it seems to be a kind of metaphor for the monastic vocation this going round and round and round doing the same thing year after year that following the liturgical calendar in the hope of achieving salvation you know that's that's what their journey is um but I became really uh excited by this idea of oh, what of the birds singing that psalm they're a little bit like the birds in the letters of the Lindisfarne yeah. gospels this kind of living together according to a rule um taking action according to their understanding to go somewhere hopeful um, and to live in harmony as well, to experience that harmony. And so those those were themes that um, that I wanted to explore in the last two chapters, over and above themes of the apocalypse and uh, doom, you know, um, but as a sort of foil to them. I thought it was just so beautiful and I thought that there was so much hope in that. I think that's something we we all need to... to uh, to accept the imperative of hope, I think, you know, um, just before I started writing Wild, I'd had a baby and I got a bit anxious about things and especially the kind of two two things, the sort of apocalyptic rhetoric that seems to be coming from everywhere and also the, ap- the rhetoric of apathy, which is yeah. possibly worse. Um, and and it was, it, I found that kind of, casting a line into these these early medieval sources and looking for arguments that said we should create because of mortality not in spite of it um was extremely uh galvanizing for me and uh, and hope hope inducing oh, i love that notion and it's something that definitely is there you know within the wild and it- good I thought it was galvanizing for me as well. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. You know, there is a kind of cyclical nature to reading these and seeing that back then people had similar concerns to what we have now. They might have manifested Mm -hmm. in a different way, um, but they're still there. And uh, with the first chapter that I'd mentioned before, you know, The Wife's Lament, I thought it was extremely powerful to begin the entire book with that. And with your own journey, you know, into the barrows there. Mm. Yes. The notion of the dead inspiring the living. And I felt like there was a bit of an inspiration there 
you know, being able to see that far back in time, you know, the mm. idea that you can actually visit these places and experience them is just such a powerful thing. It, it is. It's incredible. And I think, you know, in, um, there are so many places like, uh, you know, just so, so close to home for, for all of us, I think that have these stories in them that we, we just, we don't visit because they're five minutes away or we don't engage with, um, for the first chapter of really in some, it was this, an article by a woman called Sarah Semple who suggested that the narrator of the wife's lament is a ghost and associated with a prehistoric barrow. I don't want to go into too much detail because I, I think there's a kind of spoiler. I don't want to, oh, it's I don't want to give away, but um, <laughs> thank you. Um, it did involve kind of going, um, going off to a place called Stony Littleton Long Barrow and uh, and crawling to the back of a of of this prehistoric burial mound um which used to, it has a, an amazing sort of passageway stone lined passageway with chambers going off either side and you can really see, you can see the fossils just kind of glinting either side of you and you really have to you have to crawl to get through and then you get to the very end and you can turn around and look back and when i visited it was a freezing freezing cold day outside and just icy hoarfrost and um but in the barrow itself, the water was dripping from the ceiling. It was practically warm. And when you were at the very back with your kind of spine pressed against the stones, looking towards this little circle of, of light um, at the far end, um, the, it was, you could see steam rolling over the floor of the, you know, I felt like this, surely I'm on some kind of film set right now. This just doesn't seem real. And to think that this for many thousands of years was, um, a grave for, uh, numerous um, the skeletal and cremated remains of numerous men, women, and children, and it was un- it was uncovered in the in the Victorian period, and um, and the contents removed. Uh, but this was this was the kind of setting I I used for the uh, the story that opens the book. Yeah, and it's great because that sort of setting is also a bit reminiscent of rebirth. You know, to be able mm-hmm. to see that and to be able to go from that to the rest. Yeah, I think that's just absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. I mean, the, the first chapter is is meant to kind of focus on the idea of the earth. Yeah. Uh, the earth is something that we, in the early medieval imagination, and probably, I mean, it's just practical, the, the thing we came from, the thing to which we will return. Um, the, the And... And also, so I did also visit um, some caves and think about just the earth as a geographical phenomenon, as well as like a an idea of something bigger. Um, we look we look at Bede and his his um, suggestion that caves are formed when wind gets trapped underground um, and labouring to escape shakes open a gap. Um, I like the way he you know, he describes the earth in very corporeal terms. He says that the earth has sponge-like innards. Um, he talks about the <laughs> veins. Yeah, it's amazing. And it reflects this idea of the earth being like a grand reflection of the human body that um, that at the center of the cosmos, we have you know, the firmament and all of the elements according to this kind of humoral th- understanding of the universe. Um the elements are all jostling and all mixed up and everything's trying to return to its element, but nothing's, nothing's settled. Everything's kind of, um, in, in a constant state of flux. And in the same way, the human body, which is governed by those elements and is composed of black bile, yellow bile, um, uh, blood and 
black Flam. bar yellow bar Red. phlegm and blood yes thank you um and these are those are also restive and kind of uh trying to sort themselves out the whole time so you know going into this cave in the mendips which is quite close to where i live but again seeing a side to the landscape that i just didn't know and i contacted the local caving group and was led down into this cave um which had this sudden kind of tunnel that you had to slide you had to literally <laughs> slide down um like the earth was swallowing you whole and it was all wet the walls were all wet so it just i felt like an, an a sort of endoscope you know camera going down somebody's throat um and this whole idea of the 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 earth being like the body that bead describes and that you find elsewhere was really uh really easy to identify with yeah, it's also a bit like being swallowed by the whale which sure yes yeah, yeah you're absolutely play right a fair bit it does I, yeah the uh, whale is a great story i, I loved <laughs> your theory that you mentioned of uh the frank's casket um which oh, came yes. into play you know within the beast section mm-hmm. i that was just striking <laughs> the um you know the analysis that you were offering of that thank you yeah that's something that i've been really keen on for years actually i mean if listeners just heard me say the whale is a great story i meant the old the old english story of the whale i'm not just bragging about my own story (laughs) um but uh that's um that's there's this in the exeter book i mentioned those three animal law um uh poems and one of them is is the whale and it says that um the whale has this dastardly trick where it poses as a as an island and it stays very very still and it waits for sailors to come by in their boats and then they they see it and they think it's an island and they moor their boats and they disembark they build their camps they light their fires and the minute the fire touches the whale's skin and it feels that heat it knows its trap has worked and it um dives and drags the sailors to the abyss and the abyss is a literal physical place but it also has very strong connotations of of hell and the kind of a wet version of Tartarus um and uh then it says and so too the devil will pose as a safe reef and uh and you will think it's safe and you will make your camp and you will light your fire but then he will drag your soul to the abyss um and I thought that this had you know whether or not you apply the Christian uh reading has a great um power you know I think we've all been in those situations in life where where you think you're safe and you're tripping along happily and it all seems fine. And then suddenly you think, Oh, I didn't, I didn't understand this. I need to get out. I've missed, you know, I, this is, and you feel the ground move beneath your feet. Um, and you know, it could be a, a literal physical situation or a psychological one, but, um, this is what I, this is the kind of springing off point for the beast chapter. Um, but I've focused a bit on a, on an object that you just mentioned called the Frank's casket, which, is in the British Museum uh, in the early medieval gallery. It's about the size of, um, in in Britain, I say uh, about the size of a Domino's box, which is like the game gaming things. Do you? Have, it's also yeah. a pizza a pizza company, and so people. <laughs> then I make a I make a joke where I'm like, not a pizza box, <laughs> the uh, gaming one. So I don't know if that translates. Images of it online. You know, I want to say yes. uh, they're very easy to come by. So while are, I was reading, yeah. I was. Uh, looking them up and I was just transfixed Um, it is a folklorist's dream isn't it I mean (laughs) because you've got um 
I mean, do you do you want to go ahead and and do a bit of Frank's casket description? As you're probably, I think you're looking at them now. Yes, I am. I I, <laughs> I wanted to look at it again because it's absolutely stunning. Um, on the British Museum website, uh, there's some beautiful images of it, and it's uh, carved out of uh, whalebone. Mm-hmm. And you have the quote in the book itself um, that is written on it that says the king of terror became sad when he swam onto the shingle which is just extremely evocative (laughs) yes i mean it's heartbreaking um this is uh you know one of the things that when i was exploring the poem the whale i was thinking you know this thing kept snagging was why why would anyone mistake the back of a whale for an island you know it's just a gray lump um, and then I got to know the kind of the the, pre, the um, source text for the, the old English poem. It's called the Physiologus, and it's a, originally in Greek, second century text. And it calls the whale Aspidocolone, which means asp turtle. And it's a kind of um, a, uh, a monstrous sort of mythical creature with gigantic mountains on its back. And, and kind of shaly beaches and that kind of thing around on its uh, on its flank, so that when it pushes itself above the water in that way, it would look for every bit like Mauritius or something, mm-hmm. Barbados, one of those big islands, and um, and you would be forgiven for for mistaking it for an island. And this made me think about the different kind of understandings of the whale. On the Frank's casket, we get this lovely idea of seeing a way, imagining what it would be like to be a be be beached as a whale that's sort of swimming up onto the shingle and the king of terror being sad so this i mean this this like aspidocolone it's this kind of monstrous threatening creature and yet he's having this moment of um of kind of bathos or kind of um great hubris i suppose uh where where he suddenly realizes he's he's a goner um and in the chapter in the story i try and explore it a bit from that perspective but um uh, there's also this idea of the Old Testament story of Jonah and the whale, with which I'm sure many listeners are familiar, where Jonah is trapped in the belly of the whale for three days. And in um, early Christian, medieval Christians thought this was seen, and I think possibly still is seen as a type, as it's known, for uh, Christ's three days in hell before the resurrection. So um, you get this a lot in medieval art, um, Old Testament scenes being used to show how they prefigure New Testament scenes as a kind of mountain of circumstantial evidence that the Old Testament is fulfilled by the New Testament, basically. Um, and so this was this is the same with Jonah, that um, that he is a type for Christ and the belly of the whale is a type for hell. Uh, and so it's just, you know, with this, uh, this artifact that is itself a casket, a vessel, um, made of whale's bone already it's loaded with symbolism and then just add to that the fact that every single face is carved with scenes from legend and it mingles germanic uh stories like the story of wayland the goldsmith uh with classical stories like romulus and remus um suckling the she-wolf with old testament stories like this um like uh What's the Old Testament one? Am I lying? Actually, no, it's a sacking of the temple in Jerusalem, not Old Testament. Um, so a kind of a, a Christian story, if you will. Um, 
and then and then New Testament uh, stories like the you've got the three magi uh, visiting um, the virgin and child and offering their gifts along with a duck. Confusingly, there's a duck in front of oh. them, which doesn't make it into the biblical narrative. There's also a couple things um, within it because it is so chock full of imagery that still haven't been fully defined. Yes, and there's yeah, there's one scene, a uh, Germanic, a uh, one panel that shows a uh, scene from a Germanic legend, and it's got a uh, it's, it shows a kind of woman mourning over a, what could be a burial mound or a funeral pyre with a figure in it, and uh, the figure is almost certainly dead. And it says in the runic inscription, um, so it's something like Hoss was sad because of the fate that Ertai had decreed for her. But yeah, it just. It was yeah, incredible, so, and your interpretation of it's beautiful. Thank you. It's, well, this is this is a story that where we don't know what the original legend was. Um, yeah, it seems here, like I have it here. Uh, here, Haas sits on the sorrow mound. She suffers distress in that Urtai had decreed for her a wretched den of sorrows and torments of the mind. Oh, just amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And we we don't know what the background story is. There's some possibility that, uh, or kind of theory that it's linked to the poem "The Wife's Lament" that we've mentioned a couple of times. This woman being trapped underground, and I definitely explore that further. Um, to to remain with the Frank's casket, it's um, an amazing moment of kind of identification with a female character, and we see this across the, the surface of the Frank's casket with the adoration of the Magi. Um, the Virgin is sitting sort of looking directly out at the viewer and she is uh, coupled with an um, Beardahild on the sort of the, the scene next to her shows um, this Germanic story of Wayland the goldsmith passing a drugged drink to uh, this young woman Beardahild who's the daughter of the king that Wayland wants wants vengeance on and so he's wreaking his vengeance on Beardahild she she drinks from this drugged cup she falls asleep and he uh, rapes her and impregnates her. And so she makes, but she's also looking directly out at the viewer. And so she just makes a very interesting um, counterpoint to the Virgin who, that you've got these two pregnancies in, in kind of uh, supernatural circumstances. And, um, and then and they both engender heroes. Um, of course, the Virgin conceives the Messiah and Beada Hild conceives a hero called Widia. Um, but they they are then on this object which uh is is itself a vessel which uh is all you know we go back to the belly of the whale um you've got Romulus and Remus suckling the she-wolf bringing in more themes of kind of uh the female plight or the kind of yeah. female role and nurturing young heroes you've got this amazing uh enigmatic scene that we've already mentioned with with Hoss suffering distress at the sorrow mound. You know, she there's that possibly is tapping into some kind of um, trope of the the woman who has lost her sons, the lamenting woman, which we find over and over again in Germanic literature. Um, so it's just it's a fascinating object, and I mean, you could just use it as a springboard for storytelling um, till the cows come home. You we could the great thing about these these narratives that there's no copyright; they're just there for the taking, <laughs> and there are great pictures online, and we can. And we can just, you know, let our imaginations run wild. Yeah, it just, it, you know, it really struck me that your analysis with it was well worthwhile viewing it as something that's, you know, wholly concerned with the female experience. Yes, yeah. I, I, It was an idea that I 
had when I was about 19, 20, and, and it's kind of stuck with me ever since. It's one of those things that you can't really prove, but, um, but it seems well worth considering that objects like these would have, you know, they're made for a highly intellectual viewer, somebody that, that had access to a lot of book learning, mm-hmm. um, but somebody that was also interested in the female experience, it seems. And so uh, perhaps this was an object designed for a secular noble woman who, who had a very strong um, sort of Christian life as well, which we know was definitely the case. We know a lot of women spent a large amount of time uh, as wives and mothers and then a significant amount of time as abbesses, you know, in this period. I say a lot of women, I mean, noble women. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's, you know, that's just one of those those theories to explore in the book and particularly using the whale and the beast as a as a kind of lens onto that particular aspect of the wild. Yeah, I loved that. I mean, I loved the whole book, but the Frank's casket was something that was wholly new to me. And I highly oh, encourage all listeners to look this up and just spend some time meditating on it because... Yeah, it's gorgeous and it's fascinating. I think Hillary and I are now already jealous of all of you that are going to meet it for the first time. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing object. Yeah. So you, you know, within the book, um, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you have illustrations of uh, wood engravings within it. And within the mm-hmm. audio book, um, you relate the artwork portion of the book within song. Um, yes. Yeah, so why wood engravings? Um, well, with Storyland, I illustrated it first with uh, with lino cuts, mm-hmm. um, which is a relief printmaking technique where you carve images into blocks of lino and then you roll it ink over the surface, run it through a press with some paper on top, and the ink is transferred to the paper and all the lines that you've carved show up white. Wood engraving is exactly the same technique, pretty much, but you do it onto small blocks of very slow-grown timbers, like boxwood mm-hmm. that can take a lot of pressure in the press. It's not the same as woodcut, which is a late medieval technique in a European context. It's late medieval and uh, and is done on wood that's cut on the plank. So you do it into the long end of the grain as opposed to the long sort of si- the side of the grain, if you can imagine, rather than into the into the end grain, um, which is much more like if you'd cut the, around off the tree and go straight into the to the, the sort of uh how best to describe it um going into the the kind of uh cross section of the tree mm-hmm. let's say it like that so um so wood engraving is a very because you have to use very fine grain timber it's very small um these are slow growing slow growing um woods like like boxwood that in 150 years might not get much bigger than a side plate in yeah. diameter um and I wanted to use wood engraving because I felt as though the natural medium material was more had more of an affinity to the uh, the sources that I was exploring and the themes I was exploring. Um, Storyland is in some ways a more playful book than Wild, yeah. and so the lino and slightly more fantastical. Um, so yeah, the lino seemed to work with with those kinds of stories, whereas whereas I felt wild with its slightly more serious themes and it's kind of reserve um needed needed wood engraving i love the illustrations um they're absolutely gorgeous and thank you you can see it on the cover of the book as well um, mm. yes that, that 
quite striking. That one was done in the first couple of weeks of the first lockdown. Um, and that's how the kind of idea for the book really began was um, was thinking about how effectively these poems convey ideas like exile and isolation. Um, and those were suddenly in the mainstream media um, all the time at the start of lockdown. And so, but we were having this in, in the UK, we were having this absolutely beautiful spring. You know, the wilderness was at completely at odds with this catastrophe we were being told about, and it was quite hard to, to conceive of it. And, uh, and yet, you know, we have these, these poems seem to offer a, a kind of mirror, a mirroring effect of emotion and, and, um, and the wilderness. So that's how it really began. And you also you mentioned the songs. Mm-hmm. Basically, for the for the audiobook, I uh I felt that it was a shame that there wasn't anything illustrative as there was in the print version. And so um I with a, a friend of mine called Robbie Haylett, um I co-wrote seven songs. Uh, he arranged them and um and they they are designed to function like the illustrations. There's one song per chapter and they are woven through. Uh, you get motifs from the songs at the beginning of each story and at the end. And then at the end and at the, finally at the end of the chapter, you get the whole song. And the idea is that the atmosphere of each song suffuses the chapter and it gives it that distinct atmosphere and hopefully kind of provides something that um, or compensates for the lack of illustrations. And I actually think kind of uh exceeds it in many ways because the music you know we recorded it with a with a full band with multiple voices with um the kind of creative input of of all of the musicians had ideas about what what should happen where and how it should sound um and many of them had read the book too and so there was a much more of a kind of collaborative um uh process to the to the the songs which the illustrations were just me on my own so personally it was really really exciting and fulfilling to do that and and the way it worked out with kind of the first chapter the song really is like scandi noir metal none of us saw that coming <laughs> and and then the, the the whale chapters are kind of sea shanty and and then you get something much more like straight choral music at the end and um and hopefully it traces i mean i think it almost it like caricatures in a really exciting way the journey from desolation to hope that the book undertakes um with this, this like ultimate darkness this kind of heavy you know uh bassy uh track you have at the beginning and then this very light and kind of um choral um piece at the end with the flute and everything i thought that it was interesting to see you know how although there is the theme of isolation you know within the book there also is this theme of people seeking contact with others um, mm-hmm. to finally culminate in the coming together, you know, with the paradise chapter. Yes. Yes. And in that final song, um, there's the, the, the chorus is, um, how sweet it is to be together. How sweet it is to gather and sing, which is, um, riffing on that psalm how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity and I suppose that's also a kind of um a resp- I suppose it's one of those ideas that's that's become stark in our imaginations since lockdown but was always there yeah. the the kind of love of fellowship and and the necessity of fellowship for um for progress and harmony uh, and for people with physical copies of the book 
um, or who, for whatever reason, can't find the audio book, the songs can be found on Spotify, um, yes. the streaming service. So you do can get the experience of reading with the songs available as well. Yeah, when I was um, when I was fifteen, I bought I, I was reading I Capture a Castle um, by Dodie Smith and uh, listening to Amy Stutt's album, which they're completely unrelated. But because I listened to the album, it was like I'd just gone and bought this CD. I was like 14, 15 and, and then was reading this book and just putting the CD on album on repeat. Uh, the way that the songs kind of fuse to the story in my imagination that I can't listen, can't hear an Amy Stutt song now without <laughs> thinking about that castle and the sisters and the, uh, and that whole world conjured by the story. Um, I thought I would, I just really wanted to have that opportunity to, to invite some uh, skilled friends and colleagues to to create this kind of aural world to go with the the imaginative one and you but possibly that... was slight so you can match up a bit better than uh, amy Stutt and i capture a castle which was an odd combination and you point out within the introduction that that aural experience is what the original you know writers and people of the time period would have gotten Yes, I think the Middle Ages gives you a great license to kind of throw caution to the wind and do whatever it takes to tell a story. Um, they, this was a time when pictures were sewn onto wall hangings, not pictures, stories were sewn onto, well, they were pictures, sewn onto wall hangings <laughs> and, and written music and told, um, told aloud at the feast and, and there was a kind of flexibility to it. We, you also get you know, stories referred to, like um, there's a prehistoric barrow in um, Berkshire Downs, not far from where I live, called Wayland Smithy, which refers oh. to this this goldsmith figure, demigod Wayland, Germanic legendary figure. And it's been called that since at least the 10th century when it appears in the charter as Wayland of Smithan. So it just shows that these stories were being applied to mysterious features in the landscapes, landscape and uh and kind of getting another life in that in that way so uh, you know um we have we have genres and we have media and we can just tear it all up and do whatever the hell we like yeah <laughs> oh gotta get the story out there right yes exactly uh, so are you working on anything new um now yes i am um oh, it'll that's be yeah it'll be coming out um not it'll be coming out 2024 Mm-hmm. and I'm really enjoying writing I'm completely engrossed in it right now um I'm probably not allowed to reveal the subject matter but I am I will say that it's um going to be similar kind of size to storyland with uh with stories and commentaries and pictures as Brilliant. before and we're sticking in the middle ages but there's so much to say because it's actually oh, a really yeah. long period <laughs> it's a really long period Good thousand a years fascinating period yes Yes, it is. And um, and I think this is I'm just having the most fun writing it. So I hope that that people enjoy it when it does come out. And um, I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Um, like I Thank told you, you uh, before the recording started, I'm already going to be gifting you know, some friends copies of Storyland and Wild for the holidays. So <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it so much, really. It's, uh, uh, where can yeah. people uh, find you online you know, to learn more um, about what you're working on? Yes, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Historia underscore Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Prince as in printmaking, not the royalty. Um, and on Twitter, I am Amy underscore Historia. And in both cases, this is Historia as in the Latin word for history, 
um just spell h-i-s-t-o-r-i-a um so yeah i hope i hope to encounter you all on there sometime uh, thank you so much for your time and thank I you, look Hillary. forward to seeing everything new that you come out with thank you and likewise following this wonderful podcast uh, you take care wild tales from early medieval britain is published by quercus and is available from all good bookshops both on your high street and online thanks to amy for taking the time to come back and discuss its themes at an event I was speaking at recently, I had the pleasure of meeting musician Susan Marie Paramore, who sings with Cardia, a band who produce Celtic folk music songs of the land. Their work seems particularly apt in connection with this episode, and I was delighted to receive two CDs from Susan, who offered their work to the podcast. So I'll be ending a few episodes with some of their music in the next few weeks and months. I'm always happy to feature folk-themed music on the podcast, so if you produce some, do get in touch with us at thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com. I'll put links for Cardia and, of course, for Amy and her book on the episode page for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and in the show notes as usual. We'll play out in a moment with the track Kalanish, Sacred Moon from the album Celestial Stones. Don't forget, if you find our work valuable to you, please consider joining our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, where you can pay less than the price of a hot drink each month to support our work and receive extra content in return. This also helps to fund the non-profit Folklore Library and Archive. And you can also use the donation button on our website if you want to show one-off support. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Sacred moon. 